You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. I invented the electric banana, and I am not making this up. Ask anyone who has known me longer than the time it takes to down a cup of coffee. If I've held their attention that long, I've probably told them about my electric banana. Now, it was a piece of rubber fruit that I bought at a department store, and I put a little neon bulb on it and a switch and a cord that came out that you plugged into the wall. And when you flip the switch, that little neon bulb lit up. It was a rubber banana, right? Not an actual piece of fruit. Nope. I didn't get it at the farmer's market. I bought it in a department store. Now, every inventor has a vision for the world, and what was yours with the electric banana? Yeah, the inspiration for the electric banana was an old Donovan song called Mellow Yellow, and he talks about electrical banana, so I made one. It's a rubber banana, and you plug it into the wall, and it lights up. That's right. Well, alas, the electric banana didn't make the cut as a game changer. Well, not yet, but I may have, I have hope. Well, maybe it would have had it been invented at the right time or in the right place. It's possible that genius, and I'm not casting a vote either way on this particular innovation or inventor, is dependent on being just that, at the right place at the right time. For example, Athens in 400 B.C., late 19th century Calcutta, Silicon Valley today. We'll put it this way. Had the Medicis of Florence seen the electric banana, or your prototype, let's just say that a stroll through the Uffizi Gallery today might be much different. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak, Uffizi Gallery. Look, in my humble opinion, it's more the Smithsonian's Museum of Science and Technology. It's more technology than it is art. Well, yeah, I would say so. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology. And in this episode, the past, the future, and the now of innovation. And not just any innovation, but the kind of new ways of doing things that come to be called disruptive technologies. By the way, where is the electric banana now? Uh, It's in a drawer at home. In this episode... What conditions historically have produced creatively rich places like Athens? Also, what will be the next world-changing innovations and why one expert says all eyes are on China for that? And finally, what changes are happening right now under our eyes, even to our eyes, as biohackers reinvent human perception one sense at a time? It's the eve of disruption on Big Picture Science. Innovation, which actually has the Latin word for new in it, nova, is not really so new. Uh, Some of humankind's most important technical developments, for example, controlling fire or building a wheel or chipping out an effective arrowhead from the rock, that was all done a long time ago, and we actually don't have a clue who did it or when. Now, we like to think our species is special, and one of the things that makes us different from other critters is that we are among the small number of tool users— But I think what really makes us unique is that we're really good and fast at inventing tools. And not just tools. We also invent new forms of culture. Think of forms of storytelling, poetry, the novel, or of representational art. The first drawings to use perspective or chiaroscuro shading. 
And some accomplishments in creatively rich eras have had lasting power. Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel ceiling, for one. But maybe it's not just the time, but also the place that matters. You could say that Florence, Italy, during the Renaissance, was a creative place. What is a creative place? It's a place with lots of creative people, (laughs) essentially. You know, I like the term genius cluster. It's a place that produces, for a short period of time, a disproportionate number of brilliant minds and good ideas. Eric Weiner is the author of The Geography of Genius, a search for the world's most creative places from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. All right, Eric, you've written about the geography of genius, the spots in the world where creativity flourishes, and heading your list is ancient Athens, 400 or so B.C. Why do you consider this a very creative place? Oh, my gosh, where to begin? Um, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, the satirical playwright Aristophanes, um, all the playwrights and the poets. And, you know, if your definition of genius is that it has an effect on future generations, well, my God, you know, go to the U.S. Capitol, look at the Capitol building or any courthouse building in any town in America, and you'll see an architectural style that dates back to Greek times. In fact, I would say uh, even your question, Seth, is very Greek because you're asking a probing question about why. And the Greeks were really the first people to ask why. So uh, absolutely, Athens in particular, not all the Greeks. You know, the Spartans, not so geniusy, but the Athenians uh, of all the hundreds of city-states were absolutely the the biggest dogs in the dog park. Okay, so they did all this, and yet they did it very quickly, right? I mean, when you think of ancient Greece, you think, oh, that must have gone on for thousands of years. It wasn't anything like that. No, no, it was, you know, I mean, the classical period, I guess, was 186 years, roughly. But, you know, if you look at the real peak, the rule of Pericles in Athens, is really just a few decades when a lot of the greatness happened. And that is a theme I found throughout my book and all these genius clusters. They're fragile, and they don't last very long. Well, you went to Athens to try and understand how this came about because— Athens wasn't the only powerful Greek city. I mean, after all, you've mentioned Sparta. Sparta outclassed it in military power. But philosophy, mathematics, literature, all the things the Athenians did, they weren't really done by these other cities. Did you find that there was something in the drinking water? (laughs) Maybe in the wine, you know. They drank a lot of wine. Uh, I'm being a little facetious, but also serious. Uh, But they watered down their wine, five parts water, two parts wine which enabled them to hold a symposia, which means literally drinking together for long periods of time without passing out. And in all seriousness, during these symposia, they talked, they discussed, they conversed about all kinds of subjects. And they also welcomed foreigners into their symposia. And that is, I think, perhaps the most important ingredient of Athenian genius, their openness to experience. You know, psychologists have identified that one trait in individuals as the most important for creative genius, openness to experience. And I think it's also true for cultures. You know, are they open to outside ideas? And let's be honest, you know, the Greeks, the Athenians in particular, did not invent an awful lot. They perfected an awful lot. Plato said what the Greeks borrow from foreigners, they perfect. And I'm sure those foreigners considered it stealing and not borrowing. Be that as it may, this is what the Greeks, the Athenians excelled at. I realize it's a little bit unsatisfying in that there's not just one thing that you can point to and say that was it. Having said that, I think there are three things you can point to for all places of genius that they all they need to have at least these three. They need to have diversity, and by that I mean diversity of ideas and not just ethnic diversity. They need to have discernment. They need to be able to separate good ideas from bad ones. You know, Jonas Salk, two-time Nobel Prize winner, was asked by a student, Dr. Salk, how do you come up with so many good ideas? He says, it's easy. I come up with lots of ideas and I throw away the bad ones. Discernment. And the third is disorder. They need to have a degree of chaos and even tension or upheaval. And Athens had that. You know, let's put it this way. You don't see a lot of genius coming out of North Korea right now. It's not that they're not hardworking or don't have the genetic wherewithal, the abilities. It's not an open society. 
we're talking about genius here, but you know maybe we need another word there, a synonym for genius, because if you're talking about the Greeks, genius is, after all, a Greek word, right? So by definition, in some sense, they can call themselves genii or whatever. What do you mean? Do you mean an outpouring of creativity, or do you mean intellect, good schooling? What, well, I tell you what I don't mean. I don't mean just intelligence, just IQ, right? Have you heard of Marilyn von Sant? Has a high IQ, 220, but hasn't produced much. William Shockley, invented the transistor, won the Nobel Prize, IQ of 140. So I guess my point is that I consider genius to be creative genius. You have to have a certain amount of intelligence, but you're not a know-it-all. You're a see-it-all, okay? You're seeing connections that other people don't. There were physicists during Einstein's time who knew more physics than he did, but they didn't make the connections. They didn't see what he saw. And I think the creative genius might change the way we view the world, as Darwin did, as Einstein did. They, they leave an impact, and that impact might be in the field of science, but it might be in the field of art. Look at people who go to crowded Florence today to see Michelangelo's David. And, you know, this is going to be a little bit controversial, but I really think ultimately it's a, it's a social consensus. It's, it's a verdict, a social verdict. We decide who gets to be a genius. If you, Seth, decided you're a genius, but none of your colleagues agreed, your family didn't agree, nobody agreed, would you still be a genius? Only in my own mind. Yes. Exactly. And the genius in their own mind is, <laughs> we have a word for that, delusional. <laughs> well, that's been applied to me. <laughs> Another area you look at is the Bengal Renaissance in Calcutta. It seems to have been fueled by the exchange of ideas between the West and the East under the British Raj, right? So what characterized this period of creativity in India? Well, it was this really collision of two cultures, of British culture and Indian, particular Bengali culture. And the result was neither Indian nor Bengali. It was something else entirely. And this was a period of time from the late 19th to early 20th century centered in Calcutta, India. And it was a time where you saw a flourishing in the arts, in science, in all sorts of fields. And Calcutta at the time, in fact, published more books than any city in the world with the exception of London. And it's not known to most Westerners, but it was definitely a golden age. Apparently, there's a confluence of conditions, including cultural attitudes, that makes a place creative, and that might change over time. Hmm. You know, things may come together for a while, and then they're, they're not there. We're sitting here in the Silicon Valley, whose main attraction 100 years ago, right, would probably have been the construction of the Winchester Mystery House or the Prune Crop. Right. right? Prune Capital of America. Exactly. Yeah. So timing is an important part of this. It is, and it's important also for individual geniuses. I'll give you an example. 50 years, roughly 50 years before Einstein comes on the scene, physicists were pretty convinced they had it all worked out. There was a famous, I believe, Nobel Prize winning American physicist who said, we just have to work out the decimal points now. It's just that that's where we are. And if Einstein had come along at that time, when the field was considered all sewn up, then he might have never gone into physics or he would not have had an impact. I mean, a field has to be ripe for a creative breakthrough and a place has to be ripe. And Silicon Valley, I really trace it back to the early 20th century, to 1912 and the sinking of the Titanic, uh, which didn't happen here. But after the Titanic sank, within really a few months, Congress passed a law requiring radios to be on board all ships. And there was a nascent radio business in the San Francisco Bay Area, and it took off. And from there on, you had this culture of tinkering with electronics, whether it was radios or later motherboards. If you talk to people here in the Silicon Valley, one of the attributes that they will quickly point to as a stimulator for all the development that goes on here is the role of money. It's the fact that there is venture capital here. I might have an idea for a new app that tells me, I don't know, which theaters serve the best popcorn, but it's not going to change the world unless a venture capitalist ponies up the cash. It's true. And that's why I think, although it's not a perfect analogy, I do think the venture capitalists of Silicon Valley 
are the Medici's of the Valley. Let me follow up on that because you say that, but of course the Medici's, I mean, they sponsored guys like Galileo and so forth, and he he changed cosmology, if you will, right? He changed our understanding of the heavens. I mean, these were big changes. You know, that popcorn app might be kind of nifty, but it's not going to change the world. I mean, it's not in the same category as Euclid or something. That's not, that's our fault in a way, all collectively. You know, I, I say in the book and I stand by it, we get the geniuses that we want and that we deserve. The epigraph of my book is a short line from Plato and it says, what is honored in a country is cultivated there. And we... As a culture, honor the Steve Jobs of the world more than the Galileos or the Mozarts. And so I mean that the venture capitalists are the Medici's in the sense that they are the ones who are making whatever flowering is going on here, however you want to characterize it, they're the ones making it possible. Money is needed to take your idea to the market and Silicon Valley is very good at that discernment part of the 3Ds, discerning what's good, what's bad, and then slotting a good idea into the ecology or the system, if you will, and bringing it to market. Uh, Being on top of the genius or creative heap doesn't seem to last very long. So is the Silicon Valley doomed to becoming past tense? And, you know, what would be the warning signs? I see some of the warning signs already. I think the main warning sign is what one historian called creeping vanity. And he was talking about Athens, but he could be talking about Silicon Valley. Creeping vanity. It sneaks up on you. And it's when you just feel like you can do nothing wrong. I've been coming to Silicon Valley off and on over the past decade, and I've noticed an increase in bling, frankly. It's flashier than it used to be. I spent a year at Stanford University doing a fellowship a decade ago. I come back now. I see people were flashier. That was never the case. You know, wealth was not seen as an objective. It was a pleasant byproduct of your creative soul, right? You know, when you're trying to improve the world and, oh, by the way, I got fabulously wealthy. But now it seems like it's a little more focused on the wealth. And uh, I, I mean, it's not a foregone conclusion that Silicon Valley will see its demise in the next decade or half a century even. But if history is a gauge, it's not going to last forever. I mean, no one in Detroit in 1950 would predict what happened to that city. I hope Silicon Valley diversifies because that's, I think, one way to head off collapse is to have a diversified portfolio, so to speak, and not just be in the high tech sector, but have other things going on. Eric Weiner, thanks so very much for being with us today. Thanks, Seth. This was great. Eric Weiner is the author of The Geography of Genius, a search for the world's most creative places from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. Coming up, a peek into disruptive technologies of the future. For example, you've got the problem of not getting the jokes of those partygoers who are parlaying Francais. Or maybe you're lost in a meeting of rapid-fire Mandarin. Well, new technology may allow you to ditch the dictionary and clear up confusion with your instant translation earbuds. Imagine having a dinner party where people are speaking three or four different languages and the only language that you hear is the language in which you are fluent. Our next guest speaks the language of the future of science and innovation. And then later in the show, stories from the biohacking frontier and of remaking the human body itself. It's the eve of disruption on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. 
Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we've toured some of the places and eras where creativity was at an all-time high, where a convergence of science, technology, and art changed the trajectory of humankind that was then. So what's next? Well, Galileo might have imagined how the telescope would revolutionize science. Indeed, it gave birth to astronomy. But average Fiorentini probably could not picture the revolution to come. They didn't imagine that their descendants would be building styrofoam models of the solar system in school and wearing I Heart Pluto t-shirts. Well, that's a good example. Here's another. In the Dark Ages, no one could have expected that a century or two into the future, an Italian would be lying on his back on a scaffolding for months at a time to create a work of such brilliance it would define great art. Then again, in 1970, no one saw the iPhone coming. Silicon Valley is a bed of creativity at the moment, but moments can be fleeting, as Eric Weiner reminds us. So what's to come? Is it possible to predict the next innovations, the next disruptive technologies that will fundamentally transform our world? Well, you'd need to gaze into a refracting spheroid for that, I guess, or have a conversation with Alec Ross. He's a technology policy expert, and he was the senior advisor for innovation for Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And he is the author of The Industries of the Future. He's traveled to more than 40 countries to answer the question, what's next? Look, the world's last trillion dollar industry was created out of computer code. The world's next trillion dollar industry is going to be created out of genetic code. I think that the 25,000 genes in our bodies are going to be the building block for is for some of the innovations that are going to completely shape our future. And one example of where I see this coming from is a place that I think has been innovation averse in the past, which is China. China, for all of the size of its economy and for as much wealth as it has created, most of its innovation has either been stolen, intellectual property that's been stolen, or entirely derivative, sort of knockoffs coming from elsewhere. I think that the commercialization of genomics provides an exception. So BGI, what used to be known as the Beijing Genomics Institute, is now the largest center for genetic sequencing in the world. And unlike, say, China's internet industry, which was really built for the walled garden that is the 1.3 billion people inside of China, the work in commercializing genomics, commercializing the medicines and the products that are coming out of the building blocks of our genetic material is much more global from the outset for the Chinese. They have a partnership, for example, BGI does, with Autism Speaks, a nonprofit organization from Austin, Texas, to understand the genetics of autism better. And so one example I, I see of genetic spread is it wouldn't surprise me if the Google of genetics were to come from Beijing, China. Some of the examples of innovation you found seem kind of modest uh, when you step back a bit, but they were transformative. For example, the development of innovative ways to use cell phones in Africa. Uh, can you share an example of that? You know, unfortunately, I've spent much more of my life on airplanes than I'd like to. But once you actually land, it's a nice thing. And I've spent a whole heck of a lot of time in sub-Saharan Africa. And when I visited Africa 10 years ago, much of what I found were places with absolutely horrible health outcomes because of the relatively small number of doctors and the isolation of so many of the communities in sub-Saharan Africa from good healthcare content, good content from the life sciences. What the smartphone has done is it's provided this little piece of personal infrastructure to be able to connect doctors and connect nonprofits to really high-quality doctors and diagnostics that otherwise could never make it there. But, but is this a matter of simply using the cell phone as a way to communicate with this expertise? Or is it, I mean, here in the Silicon Valley, I, I don't know how many companies, but it's more than one, and it's probably more than half a dozen, are trying to make a tricorder out of a cell phone. In other words, turn it into one of those devices you saw on Star Trek where you just sort of hold it in your hand or whatever, and it, it monitors your blood pressure and your pulse rate and all that stuff, right? Is that what you're talking about? All just... that stuff is, is happening now. It's bananas. So let's, let's talk about getting an eye exam for a second. When you go to the eye doctor, 
and you put your eyes up to the big old machine in the ophthalmologist's office, that is a $40,000 piece of hardware. That $40,000 piece of hardware is not going to rural Uganda. But there is now a scope that you can plug into the port on a smartphone, which is effectively a $40,000 piece of hardware. You can now get an eye scan based on an extension that you put into your cell phone. And similarly, there are things that you can do to, yes, actually put blood smears on filament that can then be attached to your smartphone, which can then be messaged out to go to healthcare providers. So it's much more than text messages saying, you know, hey, take your HIV medication. It's going beyond communications technology, increasingly into things that involve real science. So it sounds like the real impact of the cell phone is not because it allows you to call anybody up or text them. It's that it's put a a computer and a bunch of sensors in everybody's pocket. That's exactly right. And in 2016, as you and I are having this conversation, we live in a world of 16 billion networked devices, about half of which are sensors. By 2020, which is not that long from now, just four years from now, that number will have gone from 16 billion to 40 billion. And what that effectively is, is we are making more and more of our devices networked devices, and it's not for the purposes of communications. It's really for the purposes of drawing data, including scientific data, out of more objects and being able to share that frictionlessly so that we can draw meaning from it. You've written in the uh, Wall Street Journal about an invention that has the potential for unifying people, and that is some sort of universal translator. It sounds to me like the Babblefish in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Can you describe that device? Sure. This is one of the more forward-leaning predictions. Uh, but I, honest to goodness, I think this is going to happen. Imagine for a moment that it's 20 years ago and you're leaving the country. More often than not, if you did what I did, you had a little pocket dictionary with you where you know it took you five minutes to construct a sentence as you thumbed through that pocket dictionary and you spoke in unconjugated verbs. Today, when you travel abroad, you probably use something like Google Translate. But God forbid anybody actually respond to you, and God forbid uh, anybody do anything other than sort of point in the direction of the bathroom. Imagine now what I think is going to be in place in 10 years, which is an earpiece or a pair of earbuds that you put in your ear. And when somebody speaks to you in a language that you don't understand, at the speed of sound, the voice that you hear in your ear is actually in the language that you want to hear it in. And further, because of advances in bioacoustic engineering, the voice isn't Siri's voice. It's not a little computer voice, but it approximates the voice of the speaker because of advances in bioacoustic engineering, measuring the wavelength, sound intensity, and other properties of the voice. This, honest to goodness, I believe is 10 years away. The development of this uh, universal translator, I think they had them on Star Trek too, I don't know, it, but they extended to languages that were not of this earth. Is that being funded by DARPA, or some organization like that? Where's the basic research for developing this device? So it's coming from two different directions. On the one hand, look, I spent a lot of time in government and spending time in three-letter agencies. And if you think about the NSA, the NSA has significant equities in understanding what people are saying in different languages. So a lot of the R&D for this is coming, for example, from three-letter agencies in and around Washington, D.C. The competition for this, though, comes from the private sector. So Google, obviously, is working on this. There's a company called Nuance Communications, which at the present moment does the world's most advanced uh, machine translation. So whether it comes from R&D that comes from the public sector, you know, maybe somebody starts a company who used to work at the NSA, or it comes from one of these big companies like Google or a more specialized company is to be determined. But the important thing is that they're all working on it. So there is the basis in R&D to allow for commercialization. What about people who are skeptical about this kind of stuff, wondering whether future industries are going to unite us more or divide us more? The Internet and computers were supposed to unite us. That works if you can afford to have some. And as to whether they have united the world, I, I don't know. I guess you can, you can have a discussion about that. But when you talk about, for example, biotech or advanced robotics, to begin with, there probably won't be equal access, not for a while, right? The revolution doesn't arrive everywhere at the same time. 
Is that going to be a good thing? I take neither a utopian nor a dystopian view of this issue. Most people who write books about the future, either it is wildly optimistic and we're all going to live to be 150 years old, happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise, or it's written curled up in the fetal position, you know, written by somebody who's just an absolute bedwetter. And I take a view that that's not the way the world actually is. I'm much more of a realistic idealist or maybe it's an idealistic realist. But my view is that in all of these advances, they contribute to both the promise and peril of our future. So we were talking about genomics, for example. I think being able to leverage genomics to be able to, to identify cancerous cells early in stage one as opposed to in stage three or stage four can and will add years of average life expectancy to people in relatively well-developed economies. By the same token, though, the application of some of the same science will allow for designer babies which, you know, you have to really question the ethics of such a thing. So I think to view this as white or black, good or bad, takes the nuance out of issues that are inherently very nuanced. Well, biotech, there's little doubt that there's going to be a lot of discussion there. But, but let me follow up on robotics. Service robots, they're already in hospitals. I nearly tripped on one not too long ago. And I suspect they'll soon be in homes, you know, maybe doing the dusting. I don't know. But how extensive will be their presence in the ordinary workplace. I think the robots from the cartoons and movies of the 1970s are going to be the reality of the 2020s. And I think that there are two large drivers of that. First is a mathematical breakthrough in mapping belief space. So tasks that were once very complex and difficult for robotics like grasping. Grasping might seem easy, but it's actually very difficult to model mathematically and algorithmically. There have been breakthroughs in mapping belief space which are going to allow robots from doing things that are merely manual and routine to increasingly doing things that are cognitive and non-routine. The second big driver, I think, is cloud robotics. So instead of having to have a robot with hundreds of thousands of dollars of hardware and software powering it, as long as it is connected to the cloud, it can be a relatively inexpensive, lightweight device. But if it's connected, it can draw from very powerful artificial intelligence. So let's talk about C-3PO. If C-3PO came in and interrupted this very nice conversation we're having that's going over the radio waves, he would say, oh my, excuse me, and he would go walk and take a seat based on the hardware and software that's whirring in that gold gleaming body. In the reality of the 2020s, the C-3PO would be a cloud-connected device. He would walk into the studio. He would ping the cloud. The cloud would say, excuse yourself excuse yourself in English and go quietly take a seat. Yeah, well, I fear that what would happen is that C-3PO would be either in your seat or in mine. And so <laughs> you know, he'd be doing the interview or being interviewed, which leads me to ask, is it going to be blue-collar? I mean, what should I worry about? Blue-collar jobs or white-collar jobs? Uh, both. These... So both. So to this point, most of the labor that has been displaced has been labor based on the strength of your shoulders. Jobs in ports, factories, and mills that you know are involved in work that is manual and repetitive. The kind of labor that I think will be displaced next is what I would call low-level white-collar jobs, like the one that my father had for 45 years, basically putting together the paperwork for real estate closings in Hurricane West Virginia. It was cognitive, but only mildly cognitive but it was highly repetitive. It's going to be a brave new world. That, of course, seems to be the case more or less every century or so. And mo most people's lives, at least so far in the history of uh, Homo sapiens, most people's lives have gotten better. There's kind of a secular improvement. I don't know. Is there any worry in your mind that future generations will live actually considerably less well than we do as a consequence of our own R&D efforts? So the short answer is no. I think that we will live a life of increased well-being. I think that we will live longer lives. I think that we will have access to more and better information. I think that there will be access to more and better foods that are more nutritious. I think that the, uh, the bounty broadly defined in our lives will increase. But what we ought not do is be complacent about what the challenges are going to be in future employment. And so while I am generally optimistic, where I do think that there needs to be a call to arms is to figure out how we retool 
a lot of our educational systems to better prepare people for tomorrow's economy and tomorrow's workforce because humans are not as easy to upgrade as software. So you're modestly optimistic, and it sounds like you don't advocate that we throw our sabots into the looms. No. <laughs> <laughs> Alec Ross, thanks so very much for joining us today. Thank you. Alec Ross is a technology policy expert and the former senior advisor for innovation for Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. He is the author of The Industries of the Future. Well, we've traveled to the past to understand under what conditions unusually productive periods of creativity emerged, and we've peeked into the future to see where they might arise next. And personally, those domestic robots, they can't arrive soon enough for me. So what about the now? World-changing innovations may be happening right around you, to your neighbors. And these aren't devices to be held so much as worn or embedded as biohackers transform the human body itself. One perception at a time. It's the eve of disruption on Big Picture Science. We've touched on the influence of biotech in our interview with Alec Ross. He mentioned the fear of designer babies, but that's kind of an extreme development and one that's still beyond our genetic engineering abilities. Biohacking, however, that's something that's happening already at the intersection of biology and technology. And biohacking is just that, hacking into our biology, implanting devices that improve human perception, for example. Biohackers usually toil away in their basements or garages. It's a kind of DIY. But in reporter Kara Platoni's new book, We Have the Technology, laboratory scientists are included in the ranks of biohackers as well. What both amateurs and academics have in common? They are all trying to understand and even augment human perception from the inside out. And that brings us to the now in our show, devices that fit under your skin and in your brain that either restore functionality or provide new sensory abilities. Indeed, perhaps the biggest creative revolution won't be what we build outside ourselves, but what we implant in our own bodies. And it's happening now. One group of willing guinea pigs for this are biohackers called Grinders. And Kara Platoni has met Tim Cannon, the co-founder of Grindhouse Wetware, who has embedded a thermal sensor in his arm, a device called Circadia. Circadia is about the size of a deck of playing cards, and he was wearing it on the inside plane of his left arm. And what this device did... Under the skin? Yeah, under the skin. It's actually inside. Oh. They actually had... It. By the way, I should say, he didn't put it in there himself. They have a professional piercer, uh, kind of like a body artist, do it. And what this device did was it took his temperature and then it ported that information to his cell phone. So you can look at it and say, oh, okay, well, temperature's normal. And it also lit up. This was kind of the thing that really attracted everyone's attention. When he held a charging coil up to it, lights inside the, the device would flash and you could see them through his skin. So well, they, my face is in a grimace. I can tell. <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really trying to relax my expression. Okay, what is it? Connected to in him. What is it connected to? It's it's a self-contained device. It's actually encased in silicone. So it wasn't interacting directly with his nerves or anything like that. It was basically a test device. So the guys at Grindhouse, they call themselves Grinders. They named themselves after the Warren uh, Ellis, Dr. Sleepless graphic novel, uh, which kind of portrays this post-apocalyptic punker future where people make their own body augments because they're, they're frustrated with what, what the human body can do and with what's available on the market. So they've designed these kind of wild implant devices for them. So they're really inspired by this. They wanted to try building their own thing, but first they wanted to see if it would kill them. So the idea for this device was, first of all, is it going to kill Tim, right? Can you recharge the battery? Will the body reject it? Will he get a massive infection? 
will the battery breach and, you know, some chemical will leach out. And actually, he did fine. Uh, They kept it in for about three months and then they realized that the heat from the charging coil was causing an expansion. So they took it out from him. And Tim agreed to test whether or not this would kill Tim. Oh, yeah. This was Tim's idea. Tim is uh, one of the founders and the leaders of Grindhouse Wetware. and, And this is his vision. This is his dream is to augment the human body. There are people who have magnets uh, that they've implanted in their bodies, RFID chips, which are like those things that you use on your toll pass, or a lot of people chip their pets, you know, to find a lost pet. Now, the magnets, that's not so that you can find your car keys no. by waving your arm around <laughs> and it comes, you know, Although flying you, across the room to you your can, wrist. Like, you can hang a beer bottle off your hand if you have one of these things. <laughs> people who are doing the magnets are doing it because they're interested in the idea of having ma- electromagnetic perception, which is something that other animals, some other animals like do have. Sharks? Uh, and so sharks can sense electricity and a lot of migratory animals like sea turtles, some kinds of fish, some kinds of birds, uh, they have an ability to read electromagnetic fields because it helps them basically orient north-south. So a lot of people would, would have these implants and I would say, why does it have to be in your body? You know, why couldn't you just be carrying an RFID card or why couldn't you be, you know, carrying a thermometer or something like that? <laughs> and they'd say, it's because it changes my capabilities. It becomes part of who I am. It becomes part of what my body can do. And if I had to give it up, I would feel bereft. It's become a part of, of me. So it's the idea that we evolved with five senses and for the grinders, this is a subset of biohackers, or maybe it, maybe it applies to all biohackers, that's not enough. We were cheated in some way with right. these five senses. <laughs> right. Because so the, the human brain is locked in your skull, and it only has so many ways to learn about the world. We only have five sensory portals. And what those do is they take real information of the world about the world. Your eyes take light, and your skin takes mechanical pressure, and they translate or transduce it into this electric code that the brain can understand. But they're only giving you a very narrow slice of what's out there. So we humans only see what's called, you know, the visible light spectrum. So we don't see x-rays and ultraviolet and into the infrared, and uh, we don't pick up radio waves on our own. And uh, a lot of the biohackers I talked to said, this isn't enough. So uh, so one of the questions the Grindhouse guys, and it's lots of other people are asking is, could we bring in new information, totally new information that people don't already process? So they're trying this with magnets, which is a sense that lots of creatures in nature have. We know evolution built this machinery, but people don't have it. And it's probably because we don't need it, right? We don't actually migrate north-south with the seasons. You know, just like sharks have an electrical sense because they have to hunt for their prey in low-light conditions. Well, we don't have to do that, right? Except for the people going down to Florida for the winter. They do migrate. <laughs> I, guess that's so. I don't think they use magnets, I though. I guess that counts. But uh, so what they were trying to do when I met with them, uh, we took a late-night trip to Radio Shack because they wanted to build a device they were calling the North Star, which is an in-hand compass. The idea is it's a device about the size of a quarter that goes in the back of your hand, and it would light up when you were facing north. So it would be kind of like a, a workaround to this idea of being able to sense, to naturally sense direction. So how would that improve your daily life? How would you incorporate that into how you go about the world? So I talked to people who have not the North Star, not this light-up compass uh, idea, but actual magnets that they've gone to a piercer and had implanted in their body. And I say, well, what does it do for you? And they say, well, you know, I can feel this hidden world that I otherwise couldn't. I can feel metal in things. I can feel wire in the wall. I can feel electric current. Wow. When I turn on my laptop, I can feel the hard drive spool up. One of them who had, um, he had one implanted in his finger, said, okay, hold your, press your finger to mine. And then we walked into his kitchen and we turned on the can opener, the electric can opener. And I could feel the vibration of the magnet moving under his skin. One of the really fun things I got to investigate for my book was the retinal implant, which is a device to give some degree of sight back to people who have lost it. And this device is actually an implant. It goes inside the eyeball, and the person wears a video camera on a pair of glasses, and the video camera translates the image to electrical impulses, which are sent to the implant in the eye, which stimulates their surviving photoreceptors at the back of the eye. Well, that information is really sparse, very minimal. 
the man I met, Dean Lloyd, uh, who was one of the first clinical trial participants. So this is a man who was blind in both eyes? He was blind in both eyes. He had been born with normal vision, and he lost it as an adult due to a disease called retinitis pigmentosa. And he was essentially blind for 17 years. He could see if you shone a very bright light directly into his eye, and that, and that was it. So he had a memory of what the visual world looks like. He has a memory of color. He understood these concepts, but he hadn't actually seen anything in 17 years. After he received this retinal implant, the Argus II, his vision was not what he remembered. Instead of 3D shapes and shading and colors that matched the thing he was looking at, instead he just sees flashes of light that indicate contrast points between light and dark. Uh, so, for example, when we were walking down the street, he could see the division between the white of the sidewalk and the black of the uh, asphalt as a series of flashes. When uh, he was looking at oncoming cars, he would just see them as the flash off their windshield. He will very willingly say to you that he's the Model T Ford. He knows that this is an early version of a neuroprosthetic. And he sees his role is basically to test it and give feedback to the company so they can build a better next generation. Now, this is a case where a scientist was involved in planting yes. this device, right? It wasn't implanted in, in a garage somewhere. So in your book, you talk about the grinders that are, that are doing this on their own with the parts that they find in their garage, and then also the scientists that are working to understand human perception and also enhance it or maybe restore functionality. Are they both biohackers? I love this question because I personally cannot tell where the line is between biohacking and medicine. You know, people were asking me all the time, what is a cyborg? Where do you draw the line? Do you draw it at wearing eyeglasses? Do you draw it at getting a pacemaker? Rob Spence, Iborg, who is one of my favorite people that I met when I'm reporting this book, a man who actually wears a camera in his eye socket, he said to me, wearing clothing makes you a cyborg, right? Because it's, it's not natively part of your body. It protects you from the elements. It gives you this superpower to withstand the, the weather that you didn't have before, right? So he would say anything other than just running around naked makes us a cyborg? Yeah, I think he would. <laughs> I think he would. And, and other people would say, no, it has more to do with being networked to other people or to a system uh, with some kind of outside agency that might be able to control your actions or perceptions. I don't know where that line is. Was there any research, any biohacking activity or any scientific inquiry into you know, sensory enhancement that made you, frankly, uncomfortable? You felt like it was going too far. Well, I wouldn't say I saw anything that is actually going too far yet because what I saw is so novel, so still in the lab, it, it, it hasn't really been used yet. But there were some things that gave me pause that made me think, wow, the future implications of this could be immense. So one of them is a technology called stimulus reconstruction. This is the idea of recreating what a person has heard or has seen. And right now it is being developed at, at universities primarily for medical use. At UC Berkeley, I observed some experiments where a team was trying to recreate sounds a person had heard. And the idea of this is that they hope to get so good at reading the brain activity that occurs when a person is hearing sounds, hearing speech, that they can actually recreate what you're thinking in your head. They can actually recreate that little internal voice, the one that's telling you, you know, did I leave the iron on or I hate that guy's pants or whatever your little voice is saying, right? Yeah, and, or do my glasses really make me a cyborg? <laughs> right, exactly. And, and the reason they want to do this is because they think it could be a tremendous help to people who have had a stroke or who have Lou Gehrig's disease or who have locked-in syndrome and can't communicate on their own but are still capable of forming verbal thought. So the idea is you could essentially build a translator that would read out their brain activity and either type it out on a screen or you could produce kind of a like a talking box that would talk aloud for them. So it's a mind reader. Yeah. The, you know, the scientists I met said, yeah, you can call it mind reading. Well, actually, I'm sorry. The scientists I met said, you can call it a brain reader. You can't call it a mind reader because nobody really knows what the mind is. But brain reading, fair enough, right? So, so the question is, could anybody be compelled to have their brain read if they didn't want to, right? Could the police use it? Could a court use it? Um, you know, would you have a talking box that was announcing your every thought, right? And if that happens, we need to start thinking now about how this technology should be used and what the limitations are. Well, so finally, 
no one has yet developed a time travel machine, but who knows? There might be <laughs> someone in a garage as we speak doing this. But let's say we had one and we could go ahead 50 years or 100 years. Do you think we'd recognize the humans that we met on the street, or would they have been sufficiently redesigned by then? Oh, that's a great question. Well, my personal guess is we would recognize humans as, as humans. Evolution is not that fast. In 50 years, the body is not going to look that different. But would we recognize their lives? Would we recognize the things that they're doing, their tasks, the gadgets they're wearing? I don't know. If you think 50 years ago, it's hard for me to imagine somebody having a magical device in their pocket that would let them talk to anyone on the globe and take a picture of everything. So yeah, I think I think society will be different. I think life will be different. I think the body, the actual human germline is going to be pretty much the same, but we're going to be, have some way fancier gadgets. Kara Platoni, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Kara is the author of We Have the Technology, How Biohackers, Foodies, Physicians, and Scientists Are Transforming Human Perception One Sense at a Time. She's right. I mean, augmentation of our bodies, it's an old idea. Clothes tens of thousands of years ago. Makeup, eyeglasses from the 12th century. But the thing is, today, we can put smarts into these technologies, and we can do things that were never possible before. The other thing is innovation. We've heard that, well, that's something that's restricted to a particular place at a particular time. But you know what? I kind of wonder with the increase in interconnectivity, as they call it, that in the future they'll be able to collaborate no matter where they are and they won't have to live in Athens or, for that matter, the Silicon Valley with all its traffic. Well, thanks to the larger-than-life talent that provides continuity instead of disruption, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and our intern, Aaron Ross. Also thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Eve of Disruption. And if you crave more Big Picture Science, you can find it in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio because, after all, you've got a chip implanted in your liver that can pick our show from the airwaves, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know if you like the show. Oh, and do you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion? Well, just email them all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. And so you're telling me that the electric banana, which you invented, yes. ended up in a radio studio for a while. It did. But yeah. it didn't make any sound, right? No, it was completely quiet. But it was advertised every 20 minutes as uh, the only radio station with an electrical banana, product of Caltech research and engineering. You were a student at the time there? I was, yeah. There wasn't much research or engineering, by the way. How did you get the banana back? Uh, I went down to the station and reclaimed it. <laughs> <laughs>